You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. If you'll stand with me, our scripture reading is Matthew 16, 13 through 28. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Lindsay. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. The text we're looking at today that Lindsay just read for us, it's, uh, and I feel like I said this a lot during the series, but uh, this really is a very, very much a turning point in Matthew's gospel. This is really, everything's been building up to this moment because in this text, we finally, at least the, the disciples, they finally start to get an answer to the big question that's been driving the gospel all along, which is, who is this man, Jesus? Not only that, not only do we learn about who Jesus is, and this is a point in Matthew's gospel where Jesus starts to make the turn towards the road to the cross. And so we learn so much about Christ in this passage, but we also learn a lot about what it means to follow Christ by looking at Peter here. Uh, this, this text captures one of Peter's highest moments ever, one of his greatest moments ever, and then right after that, one of his worst and lowest moments ever. Peter is, is shown to be a very real, very human, very fallible person, but he's shown in three dimensions, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible. You know, the Bible, I like to say the Bible is the most holy book that we have, but it's also the most human book that we have. Because I don't know if there is another book in this world, there is not another book in this world, that better speaks to and puts on display what it's like to be human, 
the complexities that come with that, what it's like to be fallen, the struggles, the suffering, the, all of kind of the mixed motives that we have and that we feel, all that's going on inside of us. And I love that the Bible never sugarcoats it, even when it comes to someone like Peter. Matthew's going to tell us about one of the greatest moments, but he's also going to tell us one of the lowest moments. And so today we're going to look at this passage, and really we're just going to walk through it verse by verse. And there's much we're going to learn about Christ in it, but I also want to press into what we learn about following Christ in this text by looking at the life of Peter. So before we jump into the text, will you join me in prayer? Father, Father, we thank you that you... You are holy, and you are wholly different and other than us. But at the same time, you know us. And you sent your son so that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And Lord, following you, you know, it's never simple. It's never easy. It's never a straight line. There's always turns, forks in the road obstacles in the way. We thank you so much for this account, for what we learn about your son, who he is and what he's come to accomplish, but also what it means for us to follow him and how so often that's different than what we think or expect. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that your spirit would pierce our hearts that we might experience deep conviction of sin where we need to experience conviction, but we also might experience great comfort and encouragement knowing that you're a God who understands us and who calls us. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Passage begins, Matthew tells us, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so this is uh, about a two days walk from where Jesus and his, his disciples were. It's, you're start, starting to get into Gentile territory here. He's pushing them out. He asked his disciples privately, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so we, we know that Jesus, he's gained this reputation as a man of God. He's gained a following. But it's important for us to remember that certainly at this point, people didn't know exactly who he was. And so some are like, well, he's like John the Baptist back from the dead, or he's like one of the old prophets, or maybe he really is Elijah because Elijah didn't die. You know, he was swept up into heaven. Maybe Elijah's come back. There's, there's a lot of confusion about the specifics, but but there's a general sense that Jesus is not just a great rabbi. There's something unique about him. And so there's all kinds of buzz about who do you guys, who do you think he is? Who do you? So Jesus asks, they share. But then Jesus turns this question out of the speculation, away from the crowds. And in verse 15, he said to them, to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Repeater replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is one of Peter's greatest moments ever. And he says two things about Jesus. He says, you are the Christ. 
and you are the son of the living God. Now, Christ, I think as we know, hopefully you know it, and if you don't, it's okay that you don't know this, but Christ is not Jesus's last name. Uh, Christ is a title. It could also be translated as Messiah, and it's a title that refers to someone who has been anointed by, by God. It's an anointed one, an anointed king. And throughout the Old Testament, there were a lot of promises about a coming king who would come from the throne of David and who there was debate what he was going to do, but there was hope that this king's going to come and he's going to fix all this stuff, kind of like us when it comes to politicians. I don't know how he's going to do it or exactly what he's going to do, but this guy is going to come and solve our problems. So some thought that this Messiah would be a fiery prophet. Others thought that he would be a fierce warrior. No one knew exactly what the Messiah would be, and I don't think Peter knew exactly What kind of Messiah Jesus will be? Well, we know he doesn't when we continue on in the text. But he knows that he is not just another one. He knows he's not just another prophet. He knows he's not just another man of God. He knows Jesus is the one, the promised one, the king that they've been waiting for, even if he doesn't know exactly what that means. And so he says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, and you're the son of the living God. Peter knew that there was something about Jesus' relationship with God the Father that was utterly unique. And I love Peter. You know, throughout the Gospels, he's the guy who will, you know, will, will speak first and then think about it later. But here, he does that. He, he gives in and gives the answer. And Jesus responds. Jesus answered in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus saying, ding, 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 you got it. You see. And you're able to see not because you're smarter than everyone else or you've, you've studied more than other people or you're more perceptive. You're able to see and recognize me for who I am, the long-awaited for, the long-longed-for king, because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. My Father has given you special wisdom and insight. And then in verse 18, Jesus, what's happening here in verse 18, Jesus is basically saying, since you have rightly told me who I am, now I'm going to tell you who you are and who you're going to become. Jesus answered, or Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a lot that Jesus is saying to Peter here. There's three things I want to highlight. The first thing, Jesus is saying, I am going to show you, Peter, tremendous honor. I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build, the, build my church. Now, there's a play on words here that could be easy for us to miss, but the given name for the disciple that we know as Peter is actually Simon. Um, Peter, in that day, I mean, Peter's a very common name in our day, but in that day, Peter wasn't a name at all. It was a noun. It was the, a noun that meant rock. And so to call someone Peter in that day would be like us, 
naming someone or calling someone tree or something like that, which might be what a celebrity names their child. But beyond that, that would be kind of strange to just pick some kind of noun out there and say, this is who you are. But that's what, that's the nickname that Jesus gave to Simon. He called him Peter. He said, you're the rock. And now that's really important because right after saying, you are Peter, you are the rock, he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. If you've been around the church, if uh, maybe you were raised Catholic or you've had discussions with Catholics, this verse, there's been an awful lot of ink spilled over exactly what this verse means. Catholics point to this verse. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. And they point to it to explain and defend uh, the office of the Pope that Jesus gave this unique authority to Peter, and then it's been passed down. Well, the reformers and those that followed after them have rightly spent a lot of time rebutting this claim and saying, no, 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 that's, that's not it. Uh, I mean, you know, in the Catholic doctrine of the popes, the infallibility of the pope, and so we learned in just a few verses that Peter is very much not infallible. But what I think, and this is you know, my perspective, but there's a lot of people who would agree. What I think is that the reformers maybe have swung the pendulum too far in response to this. Because what I hear often, what a lot of people will say is that the rock that Jesus said he's going to build his church upon here, it's not actually Peter. It's Peter's confession. It's you are the Christ. And while that confession certainly plays a part of it, uh, I don't know, I personally don't think I can read this text and see what Jesus is saying here and not hear him saying, Simon, I'm, I'm actually going to build my church on you. You're, you're the rock. I gave you the nickname rock, and I'm going to build my church on you. R.T. France, he's a brilliant scholar on the Gospel of Matthew. He writes the wordplay here, talking about this verse, and the whole structure of the passage demands that this verse is every bit as much Jesus' declaration about Peter as verse 16 was Peter's declaration about Jesus. Now, we'll nuance this a little bit more as we go, but I believe that Jesus is really choosing Peter here to hold a special place in history and in God's plan of redemption. He's like a Abraham or a Moses or a David or kind of bring it closer to our times, he's like one of the founding fathers of the church. And Jesus says, Peter, I am going to build my church upon you. Second thing that Jesus promises to Peter is victory. He says, the honor, I'm going to build my church upon you. Victory, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. So building my church on you, Peter, but have no fear. The gates of hell, or maybe your translation says the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, when I read gates of hell, and maybe when you read gates of hell, my mind kind of instantly goes to Satan and demonic forces. And while it's certainly true that those things will not overcome Christ's church, in this passage, gates of hell, gates of Hades, it's a metaphor for the power of death. 
And Jesus is telling Peter that, that death itself will not be able to stop or slow this new community that I'm building through you. It's going to last for all eternity. Of course, here we are 2,000 years later, and we have seen how true that is. Billions of people have come to faith. I mean, we, we hear a lot, I hear a lot about the decline of the church in America. And while it's true, there's there's, there might be a, a bit of a decline happening here. What we see throughout history and what we see today is that even when the church declines in one place, it usually starts exploding in other places. And so the church might be declining in the West, but it is exploding in the global South. It is exploding in China. We are seeing more people come to faith now than ever. And so what Jesus says here, we actually get to bear witness to, that he builds his church and nothing is going to be able to stop it or slow it down. And he gives this promise to Peter. He says, honor, I'm going to build it on you. Victory, I promise you that this thing's going to last. You can't, you can't muck it up. And then the third thing, he promises authority. He says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you've ever seen a movie or a cartoon that depicts Peter at the pearly gates of heaven letting people in, this is why. This is the verse that that whole image and kind of shtick comes from. Unfortunately, those depictions are based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. And this is what I think is really key to understanding this whole passage. Jesus, in this conversation, he's not saying to Peter, basically, listen, my time here is almost done and my work here is almost done. I'm going to retire and I need someone to take over the mission. That's not what's happening. Even after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, Jesus is still building his church through his spirit. So Jesus is not looking for a successor, no. What Jesus says is, I'm going to work through you, and I'm going to invite you in to join me in the work I'm doing, and I am going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, in the ancient world, the master of a house or the king in a castle, they would have a set of keys that they would give to their top servant, to their most loyal, most faithful servant, their most trusted servant, and this was considered an incredible honor when you received these keys. Because possessing those keys meant you had the honor of opening doors to let people in. You had the honor of welcoming in visitors and guests. And what Jesus is telling Peter here is he's saying, I'm going to give you the keys and you get to start opening my kingdom for people. And when, when you think about it in that lens, then you, you go read Acts. What do we see in Acts 2? Day of Pentecost. Spirit comes down. Who's preaching? I mean, one of the greatest sermons ever. Peter. What happens? Thousands of Jews who were outside the kingdom start to come in, welcomed in. Acts 8, Samaritans. Peter is there, and he, he's opening the door for Samaritans. Samaritans were half Jews, half Gentiles. He said, you guys can come in too. 
And then you get to Acts 10, Cornelius, and Peter has a crazy dream with a sheet filled with all of what, what up to that point was considered unclean animals. And God basically says, go and eat them all, feast on those. And then he realizes, oh, wait, I'm allowed to open the door even to the Gentiles. And so he flings the door open for them as well. And Gentiles start coming to faith. See, this, this is about he's saying, I'm giving you honor. I'm giving you the promise of victory. But I'm also going to give you authority to welcome people in. And not just to welcome people in. He's going to give Peter and the other apostles authority to draw some lines around the community. This is what he's getting at when he talks about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth. That's language that's strange to us, but it was a fairly common way that rabbis would speak back then. And it was basically their way of saying, uh, this is what's acceptable in our, our community. This is what behavior is expected, and this is what behavior is unacceptable. And Jesus here, he says, I'm going to give this to you, Peter. And then we see in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel that Jesus says this to all of the disciples, so it's not just Peter. But he's telling them, I'm going to give you authority to, when you get into the gray of life, to draw boundaries around the church, to speak with authority into the life of the church. I'm going to give you the authority to declare what behaviors are acceptable and unacceptable, what beliefs are are good and true and beautiful and which ones are not. And this is, this is not unchecked authority that, that Jesus gives Peter. It's delegated authority. Jesus isn't saying, Peter, it's, kind of, it's yours now. Peter doesn't have the option, like if he got into like a conflict with someone or they really angered him, you know, or they messed up his order at the drive-thru. He's like, you know what? You're out and you're never back in and I hold the keys. In no way is Jesus communicating something like that. Instead, Jesus is saying to Peter, you get to fulfill the work that has been ordained by my Father in heaven. And because these verses can be challenging, if you, you look at 19, depending on your translation, uh, some translations will have a footnote there where he says, you know, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven or shall be bound in heaven. Um, but the language is, it's really complicated. The best way that I could say it is it would probably be better translated as whatever you bind on earth will have been found to have been bound in heaven, basically. And R.T. France again for the win. He says, the impression in this verse, the impression is, is that when Peter makes his decision, it will be found to have been already made in heaven making him not the initiator of new directions for the church, but the faithful steward of God's prior decisions. This saying becomes a promise, not of divine endorsement, but of divine guidance to enable Peter to decide in accordance with God's already determined purposes. Now, like I said, this is a, a passage that's been hotly debated and contested Entire books have been written over words and phrases in here and what it means. And I think that's good and right and necessary. But one of my fears is that we can get into the argument about what this means or what this means. And we can actually, we can miss the forest for the trees. And I actually think one of the reasons we, we argue about this verse so much is because we know Peter. And I think for some of us, it's hard to believe that Jesus would say, hey, you, 
I'm going to build my church on you. We think, no way. He's so fallible. But that's the big point here. The point, the message here, the the wondrous and kind of mind-boggling thing is that Jesus, when he says, I am building a kingdom, a people, a gathering, a church, and Peter, you get to lead the charge. And again, using sanctified imagination, holy imagination, speculation, I wonder what the other disciples are thinking. Peter, really? I mean, the guy who sunk when he tried to walk to you on the water? He's, he's your pick? What about me? Why wouldn't you pick me? Or, or, or what about him? But there's something profound in this. That Jesus, as he's creating this new community of the church, he chooses to use a fallen man to build it upon. And to this day, God continues to use fallen and imperfect men and women to build his church and to grow his church. And that's how God ordained it to be. And sometimes, if you've been around the church long enough, sometimes the church can be really powerful and it's amazing. Like the church at its best, locking arms, going after the mission. Like there is nothing more encouraging, exciting, or powerful on this earth than when the church gets after the calling Jesus has put on it. But there's also few things on earth as discouraging as when the church isn't doing that or when it loses sight or when you're hurt by the church or by someone in the church. It's powerful, but at times it's pathetic. And yet when we look at this story, we see maybe that's actually how God designed it to be. And when he put Peter, called him and said, you're going to be the rock. Peter had moments of of great faith and courage, but he also had moments of great doubt and cowardice. I think what I'm trying to say to you is that the church, we can bring in our assumptions about what the church is and what it's supposed to be. And I think the general assumption is the church is a place where I go to get served and to be encouraged. And that's part of it for sure, absolutely. I don't want to diminish that. But when you you look at the New Testament and you look at the, the people that God chose to build his church upon, you also got to see that the church is a place where we get refined. Because we're imperfect people working together in an imperfect way. Moving on, verse 21. You got to imagine, before I read it, you got to imagine Peter's pretty charged here. He's like, not only did I get the answer right, not only do I see Christ for who he truly is, I'm getting this privilege. He's promised, I don't even know what it all means, but it sounds exciting. He's going to use me in powerful ways. And then verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, it's important to remember where we are in the timeline. Jesus just told Peter and his disciples, I'm going to build my church. 
Even the gates of Hades, even the power of death cannot stop it. Peter knows he's some kind of promised king. He doesn't know exactly what that means. And so up until this point, Peter is jazzed. He's excited, he's hopeful. And then Jesus comes in and says, but now I got to tell you something else. I got to go to Jerusalem and it's going to be brutal. And I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested, wrongly convicted and put to death. So none of this makes sense to Peter. And so Peter, I love it. I love the boldness of Peter. He, he pulls Jesus aside, you know, in a godly way, because you don't want to confront him in front of everyone. So he says, hey, can we talk? And it says that he rebuked Jesus. Like, no, Jesus, that's, that's one, that's not what's going to happen to the Messiah. That's not what's going to, I'm not going to let, we're not going to let this happen to you. And then Jesus we're told, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Imagine being Peter in that moment. You're just showing all this honor and then you speak up because you loved Jesus and you're like, I'm I'm never going to let this thing happen to you. And Jesus says, you're Satan right now. Only time Jesus ever called someone Satan, right here. And why? Because Peter, unknowingly, but nonetheless, Peter was trying to pull Jesus off of the mission that God the Father had prepared for him. God had a plan and a purpose and a call that he put on Christ's life. And Peter here is saying, no, 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 you don't have to go there. You don't have to, to do that. And that happened one other time with Jesus, right? 40 days after being in the wilderness, temptation with Satan. Jesus goes on and he says, Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's saying, you think you know how things should go, how my mission will be accomplished, how victory will be won, but you're thinking about this on a human level. Your mind is not set on the things of God. You're bringing your own assumptions about who I am, what my mission is, and how it's going to be accomplished. You think that my mission is going to be accomplished through might, through power, through impressive things, through shock and awe, but my mission, it's not going to be accomplished through strength. It's going to come through weakness. And the church, it's not going to be built through your strength. It's going to be built through your weakness. Verse 24 and 25, then Jesus told the disciples after rebuking Peter, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What struck me as I was studying this passage is the dissonance between these two accounts, especially for the disciples. I mean, in the first account, there's honor, power, authority, victory. In the second one, suffering, opposition, self-denial, cross-carrying, Laying down your life. The first one, 
Death won't even be able to slow you down what you're building. I mean, it's so encouraging. It's got to be so hyped. And then the second one, actually, you got to start dying right now. There's a, a dissonance, a disconnect here and throughout the Bibles, and really at the heart of the Christian faith, this, this promise of victory, but also this, this promise of suffering. And this promise of, of honor, but also experience of shame. And it's really, really hard for the church to harmonize these two things. You know, when I listen to worship music, there are times all I want is the happy, clappy victory, like we're going to win always. But then when life hits a really hard spot, those worship songs can just fall on deaf ears. It's like, you, you, yeah, someday, but right now? And so what are we to make of this? How, how do we bring these two things together? The, the power and then the sacrifice. Well, Martin Luther figured this was a great text and a great week to quote Martin Luther on. Um, Martin Luther is most known for his 95 theses that he nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. But one of his lasting and most important contributions to the church is something called the Heidelberg Disputation. And in that disputation, Luther contrasts two fundamentally different ways of thinking about God, about life, and about everything in between. And he refers, he gives these names. These are his names, not my names. He refers to one as what he calls the theology or the way of glory. And the other he refers to as the theology or the way of the cross. Now it's important, I, Luther didn't make this up. It wasn't something new to him. It's woven throughout the scriptures, but he gave it a name. And he put words to something that I think all sincere followers of Christ feel at some point. He said the way of glory, basically, when we think of the way of glory, glory here is not being used in a good way, it's being used in a negative way. He says what happens when we're tempted to, to a theology of glory or the way of glory is we are tempted to assume that God's ways and our ways are basically the same, that God is really just a bigger, more powerful version of us. A theology of glory makes God in our own image, which means what we value, God values. What we're impressed by, he's obviously impressed by. And so we're impressed by strength and by might and by power. And so God, too, must be impressed by strength, might, and power. We think that the way to life and flourishing is found through achieving and accumulating and winning and conquering. And so God probably operates that same way. We think that Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So surely that's what God is like. We think the way to deal with our problems or our enemies is to steal, steamroll them. And so we assume that's what God must be like. I mean, in Luke 9, remember when the people of Samaria reject Jesus, his disciples ask, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's the way of glory. That's what Luther is getting... God is going to deal with the problems the way we deal with them. And in the way of glory, there's no room for suffering or hardships or persecutions because the way of glory assumes all of those things are just unwanted disruptions outside of God's plan. And so often the way of glory can be dressed up as Christianity. I mean, the most egregious and obvious way is when you, you get to health and wealth gospel. 
But I think even how we think about Jesus, I saw this image and I had to share it. I think it's in there. (laughs) That's the way of glory, Jesus. Muscular. Yes, he's on the cross, but he's actually breaking the cross. We don't, I mean, as Americans, we really like that, that image. But the way of glory, it's precisely the temptation Satan put before Jesus in the wilderness. Saying, you don't need to go hungry, multiply loaves, do something great. If, if you really are son of God, throw yourself off the temple. The angels will come. It'll be amazing. Think of it, the fireworks. And then the greatest temptation, you don't have to go to the cross. Just bend a knee right now and I'll give you the kingdom. Now Luther says, in contrast to this theology of glory, is the theology the way of the cross. Basically, what what Luther says, both in the disputation and elsewhere, he says, when God chose to save us, he didn't come in the way of glory, at least how we think of glory. He didn't come as a great warrior trampling on enemies. He came as a child born in an animal trough. And his life wasn't marked by worldly success. He was a man of much sorrows, acquainted with much grief. He was lowly and despised, and there was nothing to look at upon him. And he didn't save us through force or a raw display of power. He saved us through weakness, through humiliation. And this event, the cross, the the greatest event, the most important act of God in the history of the world, it's marked by what? By suffering and by shame. And what Luther says is to be a theologian of the cross is to see the cross not as a means to the end, but to see the cross as the ultimate demonstration of God's involvement in our world. And what Peter is, what Jesus is doing in this text, for Peter, for the other disciples, and for you and me, he is giving us some great promises, but I think he's trying to teach us all to become what Luther would call theologians of the cross. I'm making great promises to you, but if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your own cross. If you want to try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will find it. And it only follows that if we're to devote our lives to following this Jesus, then our lives will become cross-shaped just like his was. And in this strange moment in history where we're all being humbled and brought low in some way or another, I haven't talked to a person yet who said the last six months best, I mean, even introverts, like extreme introverts, they're like, you know, I could be around people. I haven't talked to a single person who said the last six months, they've been amazing. I loved it. I could keep doing this forever. I think we're all being confronted with weakness. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a struggle in your marriage. I saw that divorces this year are up 43% from last year. Maybe it's your own mental health. Teenagers, maybe you're frustrated that you're living at home. College students, maybe you're frustrated that you're back at home. Maybe there's conflicts with others. Maybe it's mental health. 
But my question for you is, what would it like, look like for you to receive these trials, hardships, and reminders of your frailty and fallenness? Not as something to be avoided, like the way of glory would say. Not as something to, you know, to be solved as quickly as possible. But as invitations to grow in the way of, in the, way of the cross. To be humbled. To be conformed. This is the process of growing as a Christian. Now, I want to close by saying when we trace out Peter's life, we see that growing into this cross-shaped life, it takes a lot of time. Here in Matthew 16, Jesus calls him Satan. Matthew 26, they come to arrest Jesus. And what's Peter do? Pulls out the sword. Way of glory. Never cuts off an ear. Then at the end of that chapter, he denies ever knowing Jesus because he knows if he acknowledged that, that he might have to suffer too. You get to Acts, he's maturing, but he has a ways to go. He, he makes some pretty big uh, mistakes in Acts. He withdraws from eating with Gentiles. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid of the suffering and the hardship. But then you get to the end of the book of Acts and you get to the end of Peter's life. And we don't know much, but we, we do know Tradition has that he ends up dying on a cross just like his Savior. But unlike his Savior, he died upside down on the cross because he said he was unworthy to die in the way of Christ. And I think about what, what got Peter there. You know, he's like, no, I don't know him. After he said, I'll never deny you. To at the end of his life, he says, if you're going to crucify me, I don't, you, you got to put me up. I can't die the same way Christ has done. That's blasphemous. And it's years of hardship, failure, humiliation, suffering, moments of shame. It's years of all of those things that Peter learns the way of the cross. And the way we take all of those experiences and actually use them as tools for growth, it's through repentance and faith. It's through turning our mind away from sin, away from our self-centeredness, away from acknowledging what, what it is, but then fixing our eyes on Christ. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that Jesus didn't come just to be an example for us. He came to be the sacrifice for us. On the night of his betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood poured out for you. And he invited us to do this as often as we gather as his people in remembrance of him. It's here that we're reminded of his sufferings and his death and his promise to us that, that this is the way to life. It's here when we come to this table that we can confess our sins, we can repent and turn from them, and then we can turn to him, a savior who shows us such boundless grace and mercy. So if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, I invite you, if you have your communion packet, if you don't, there's some in the hallway, but I invite you to take part in the the broken body and the shed blood of Christ as you remember what he has done and what he is doing and what he has promised. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.